This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Today on The Gender Card, we will speak to two esteemed Griffith University researchers, Professor Leonie Rowan and Dr Dara Shah, who are leading a dynamic interdisciplinary team investigating how gender discrimination impacts both the personal and professional lives of academic women in Australian universities. The study will use intersectionality theory to gather the experiences of academic women and find out why so many still experience job insecurity teaching overload, expectations around emotional labour, reduced opportunities for research and everyday sexism. Leonie and Dara, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Gender Card. Thank you very much. Before we go any further, though, Dara, would you like to do the acknowledgement to country? Yes, sure. Actually, interestingly, I was at one of the conferences earlier this week and they taught us, you know, this amazing company called us Acknowledge This, took us through how we can make that acknowledgement our own. So I'm going to do that now. So just to start with myself, my birthplace was a little town in Panjim in Goa in India which was actually the land of the Konkanes. And then I moved to Mumbai, where I grew up, and that was the land of Maharashtrians. My origins are from the land of Gujarat, where I never lived. 20 years back, I was lucky to have had an opportunity to come to Brisbane, and uh, that is the land of the Chakra, Chakra and the Turbal peoples. And I'm very, very thankful to all the traditional owners who have actually opened up their countries to me and allowed me to be a part of it. And I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting you today and pay my respects to elders past and present. Thank you. Oh, that is such a genuine acknowledgement, and I really appreciate that. I'm going to have to try and apply that in my in my own life, I think. <laughs> so from here, can you tell us a bit about this research project that really is in its very early stages and, and uh, how that began? Yes, absolutely. So it began about uh, 35 years ago when I first started as an academic. <laughs> there you go. You've been thinking about this for a while. I've been working on this for a while. So my PhD was on Australian women's literature and representations of gender and race in women's literature. And so I read a lot of um, feminist writing. And I was doing this at a university that was in central Queensland, which is very conservative and very masculine and very sexist and blokey which started to give me the language to understand some of my own experiences, right? And then I got hired as, over the years, to teach the subjects about gender, which other people in universities didn't really want to teach about because they're a bit hard, a bit hard and difficult. People might get, you know, people might get cross or confrontational or emotional. So that became my specialty, really, as a 21-year-old academic. And then fast forward a few universities and a few decades, (laughs) and I'm at Griffith and I'm still teaching... Uh, courses that deal with issues relating to gender in relation to the social context of schooling primarily, but also in in regards to other professional contexts. And I'm sitting at my desk thinking, that that class was really hard. Am I the only person who still finds this work really hard? So we have this wonderful um, Gurn, 
uh, group. So I sent a, a message out to the group of people saying, would anybody like to talk about the experiences of teaching about gender? And voila, these wonderful people put their hands up and said, yes, I would <laughs> like to talk about that very much. Thank you. And we got together and we started talking about what it means to teach about gender in our diverse disciplines. So we've got people from a lot of different disciplines, which we'll talk about in a minute. But very quickly into that conversation, we started talking about how teaching about gender as part of our work life is complicated and informed by our own experiences of being gendered in a university environment. So we decided that we would apply for research funding to undertake a, a pilot study, really, of people's experiences in relation to gender in the university context as a basis for doing ongoing research. So the project is going to be looking at the experiences of um, diverse academics, women and non-binary academics, and their experiences of um, sexism, discrimination, inequity. From your perspective, Dara, how did you become involved? Yeah, it was really interesting, you know, once we all came together and started talking about our own, you know, like what teaching about gender is and the experiences we've personally had. It was like those aha moments. Everybody was sharing stories and I'm like, oh yes, I've experienced that. Oh my God, I've seen that happen. And it was like, you know, this thing that the eight of us who came together and I still remember those discussions and some of the experiences which angered us and made us cry and we were emotional throughout that process and we like why are we sitting here 30 years on you know since all these research has been going on why are we still sitting here talking about this why are women still experiencing this shouldn't this have been history shouldn't this have been resolved but no we are still experiencing that so yes we were all like yes let's do this research let's hear more voices let's see what other people are experiencing was that part of your motivation as well leonie reflecting on three decades of academic experience and thinking, goodness, in some ways we haven't really progressed all that much. Yeah, absolutely. So the, one of the big feminist principles is the personal is political. So it's very important to be thinking about your own life and your own situatedness and your own experiences and not ignoring it and not devaluing it. But as you go over time, you start to think, maybe it is just me. Maybe it really is just me. Maybe I am actually the problem. Like, maybe everybody else is fine. So getting into a situation where you could start to have a conversation with people who I had never met before. I'd never met Dara before this project. I'd never met the other members of the team who we'll um, introduce as well. But it, it went instantly into this shared understanding of what we're talking about. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I get you. It's not just you. You're not alone. Let, let's have a serious conversation. And to be heard and seen even at the beginning of the project, that must have been very meaningful. It was fantastic, Dara. Yeah, no, it was. I think, uh, and particularly because my research has also been on gender, looking at women's challenges and recently on in disadvantaged women, you know. So, like, just thinking about how women's experiences shape us all as well, you know, things as Leonie just said, is it just me? Maybe I'm the problem. We start because that's how our whole social cognition has been, you know. It's like, this is how women should behave. This is what your expectations are. And over a period of time, we learn to just accept it. And it's always as, as a problem. And uh, just something funny that I would share just re right now we were talking about 
most of my emails I start with an apology or a sorry. <laughs> you know, it's like we are so trained to never, you know, if somebody is asking us something, we, we can't just say no. We have to be like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And we're always trying to over-explain ourselves. And yeah, it's it's a very interesting world we live in. And that's how we have actually trained ourselves as well. Exactly. So the you know the university system, like well, like every public institution really, is built upon patriarchal, phallocentric sort of ideals about who belongs here, who should have power here, who's got the right to speak here, who should be listened to here, and then everybody else is sort of on the edge of being like, oh, sorry, I won't take up too much room. Oh, sorry, do you mind if I? Oh, can I just please? Do you, do you mind? Can I just sneak in for a little bit? And we were talking about, like, the, the features of the ideal academic. And there's a lot of things that an academic is not supposed to be. And, yeah. One of the things is they shouldn't be a woman. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. And so if, it's still very gendered. <laughs> yeah. And, like, if you have to be a woman, like, so first of all, stop it if possible. <laughs> but second of all, if you have to be a woman, don't make a big deal about it. Like, just fit in. Just be quiet, be grateful, be apologetic, be nurturing and do all those sort of stereotypical things, which, again, 70 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, people have been, like, identifying the stereotypes around femininity that are naturalised and normalised in different cultures. And universities uh, are not immune to that. She would like to think, you know, homes of enlightenment. But they're they're places where those um, patterns can be reproduced over and over and over again and dusted off and made to look new and shiny. But and, and become quite difficult to name in some cases because you feel like this shouldn't be happening. So you're a bit cautious to call it out sometimes. So can we explore some of those issues that you'll be looking into, such as the job insecurity of academia? Does that seem to be predominantly something that women experience? Is that what you'll be investigating as well? We're asking about women's experiences in their environment and we're asking about their experiences getting into and staying within that environment. So job security is definitely a part of that. We know from our pilot study that women academics are at particular risk of casual and insecure employment. And then you get in this vicious cycle where you take on a casual contract or a a short-term teaching contract. So you have to spend a lot of time on that because that's very demanding work. And then, of course, you can't work on the research, which is required in most cases to get a full-time, ongoing, tenured position. So we're sort of creating this trap that women can't get out of. I mean, any academic who gets caught in that trap is at risk there. But it's something that has come through with our participants as being very hard to stop because if you get off, if you try and get out of the trap, then you don't have any money. A lot of gender research is about providing people with the opportunity to make legitimate choices, sustainable choices, safe choices. Choice by itself is nothing, right? We can all choose to stand up and walk out of our workplace but if it means that we can't pay the rent and buy food, well, that's not really a choice, is it? So we try and look at that notion of what's a choice, what's a forced choice, what's a safe choice. And that's coming through our pilot studies. That a lot of women feel like they don't have a choice. They have to take these contracts and they think, Dara will back me up on this, they think if they're just good enough, if they just keep being the good girl, the good worker, there'll be a reward. Yeah. And with that, you know, I have seen a lot of, particularly in the sessional and contract staff, who stay in that cycle because they are not 
able or don't have the time because it's not just about teaching, right? They do have, as women, we have this life outside of work, which people forget, you know, often about, that we have to go home, we have to do the cooking, we have to look after kids, we have to do a lot of things which are traditionally expected of women, but which we think at the moment, you know, in some houses. And now this is actually a funny one because I often get told that I'm very lucky that my husband helps me at home. Yeah, I get that too. You're so lucky your husband does the shopping. I'm like, oh, (laughs) I think he's lucky that I cook for him. (laughs) (laughs) But it's this expectation that we are all living with, you know, not just within the organization, but even outside. And because of those expectations, women who are in that contract and sessional work, what happens is they finish their whole, you know, all that enormous teaching load and, you know, all the additional load that gets thrown onto them, go home and they have other things that continue in their work, in their life. And and like the smallest things just tell you everything about a context, right? So when people say to a person who identifies as a woman, you're so lucky to have dot, 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 partner who does. And then you can, we know what the list of things is that makes us lucky, right? You know, a, a partner who can cook, clean, look after the children, let us let us work, you know, let us go on holidays, you know, understand your long hours. Like that tells you everything about the ongoing construction of masculinity and femininity in binary terms. Right? This is normal for men. This is normal for women, and if you transgress those boundaries, people are going to be at best surprised and at worst horrified or out for some sort of explanation and, and often want some sort of payback. There's a cost for that. And that, you know, we're, we're constantly talking these days about getting beyond binary notions of gender, understanding gender as a spectrum, understanding non-binary positions, and, and yet just our day-to-day discourse is always putting people back into those places. Like, oh, how unusual for you to be able to do that. And so part of this research, which is a, a survey, but also giving people a chance to like type their own comments, write their own comments, or even record their own comments. We've got a feature that people can provide photos to illustrate their experiences or a cartoon. And say a story. <laughs> tell say us a story, story. Because we understand. We want to capture people's voices and we understand that people have different ways of using their voice is to get those little moments, which in isolation, it's very easy to ignore. It's like it's really easy to ignore the first symptom of something. But when you get a lot of stories, you start to think this isn't, this isn't a story. This is a, this is a society that we're talking about here. It sounds like it's not just the paid workload that's an issue. It's also, as you say, the mental load of what women carry when they get home. And it all <laughs> blurs together. Yeah, we talk a lot about the emotional labour of being expected to act like a capital W woman, like the stereotype of a woman at university. It's like, what what we do at home, that's up to us, right? Like, we might be nurturing. We might not be. We might have cats. We might not. Like, whatever. (laughs) Maybe I cook. Maybe I don't. Who cares? None of your business. But once I come into the corporate environment, people expect me to act like a woman academic, capital W, capital A, and the body of a good academic is not compatible with the body of a good woman in most cases. (laughs) They are in contrast because it's like you've got to be able to work 24 hours a day. You've got to be able to go to conferences and and spend months overseas networking. I was told when I was like a level C academic, I'd never get promoted unless I spent a year living overseas. I said, well, that's great. Who's paying for me to bring my six children with me? Who's going to do that? 
Is, that, is, there, a, is there a special fund you have for that? <laughs> oh, then don't be ridiculous. Well, well, who's the ridiculous one here? And this can be reflected in conversations as well, even when we're introduced at meetings, oh, as you found. Yes. <laughs> this is hilarious. I shared this with somebody because sometimes, like I shared it with this group because I had to be, it was triangulation. It's like, this is weird, right? Okay, so I was I was in a meeting. It was a research meeting. I was there because I hold the position as director of a research institute. There were people there I hadn't met, and a colleague of mine introduced me to these other very fancy people from other institutions. They were like, this is Professor, you know, X from the University of Very Important, and this is Leonie. She's a really nice person. <laughs> that is so terrible. Oh, it's truly. like, oh, and because you're like, oh, oh well, that's nice but I don't think that's why I'm here. No, I think you've got a bit more to contribute <laughs> should than I, that. I don't know, should I have brought flowers and cakes or something? I don't know. Was I supposed to bring the kittens? I mean, I'm not sure but it was very confronting because then I had to pass over that and then like reassert myself into the narrative as yes, hello, my name is Leonie I'm the director. So you've got to do that self Promotion stuff, which is very awkward as well. Well, which women feel uncomfortable with, I think, yeah, quite often. Absolutely. Yes. But it was done so the other two people who were introduced to me, they didn't that work was done for them. And I think something that we discussed earlier as well, it's often that when women try to say, Oh yes, I'm professor so and so and this, people look at you like, um, she is just aren't playing you, the power mm, game. Aren't you fancy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> look at you. Yeah. It is strange that that attitude does seem to prevail. I've noticed that myself from yeah. a journalistic sense as well. It's much easier to get academics who are men. It's just not even an issue, really, for them to introduce themselves with their, their titles, which all of you have worked incredibly hard for. Yeah, I, find it re- I still find it really difficult. And I do it deliberately when I can because I'm still, like, again, I got my PhD when I was 27, still trying to normalise the idea that women can have academic careers and like I'm a white woman and it's hard for me so when you add in issues of race culture language ethnicity sexual identity becomes even well it just becomes more challenging much more challenging much more complex so it's really important to respect people when they do you know use their titles well it might be for many reasons (laughs) but one of them is to just disrupt that notion of what a normal academic what a professor, what a senior lecturer looks like. So you'll be exploring some of those issues of intersectionality there that you touched on as well? Definitely. I think we are looking at, as Leonie said, the race and culture and even the sexual orientation, gender orientations, all of those things and how that actually intersects with the experiences we've had. So while, you know, there are so many similarities and experiences that uh, I've had personally with the whole group, but when you put that whole card of different culture and race in those experiences, and sometimes they are so, nothing is in your face, right? But you do experience it. You do realize that it's happening. And as Leonie said before, sometimes you start to think, is it just me? Is Am I the problem here? You know, maybe I'm overthinking. And I often get told this, you know, I'm overthinking something. And it was just a joke, you know, you take things too personally. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, (laughs) that's the reaction. Very dismissive, isn't it? A a microaggression, I think I would call that. Definitely. (laughs) It's like we were saying, it's, it's a little bit like gaslighting because you start to think, okay, I'm a professional researcher. I know how to interpret data. You've just given me some data. 
I've got like these bells ringing in my head saying whoop, 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 sexist, racist, ableist, whatever. But in that moment, doubt comes in and it's like, oh, are you sure? I don't have that doubt in any other analytical context. <laughs> but in my own workplace, I'm like, ooh, did that just happen? Which is why, to bring us back to our research project, which is why we're so committed to to doing this work and making sure we get like up-to-date contemporary, this is happening now research, which we can take to our conversations because not only will that hopefully help the participants in it feel listened to and heard and valued and respected, but it gives us a platform for continuing to advocate for big picture and small picture change, like actual systemic change. And looking over the research that you've done, I I really noticed something that I found very interesting that you touched on, that sense that gender issues have been addressed for many decades, so they're all fixed. Is is, is this part of the problem? I I reckon it is, yeah. I wrote a paper, I don't know, like 10 years ago for a conference, which which was called, Are You Still Here? <laughs> Being a feminist uh, academic in a post-feminist university. Like, people are like, oh, really? Are we still talking about that? Because people just, uh, I don't know, they want it to be fixed because if it's fixed, it's no longer work for them. And the reality is all of us, I would imagine, certainly me, has a lot more to learn about gender, intersectionality, how to make the environment safe, equitable, inclusive for diverse people. And that's hard and confronting and it often requires us to give up space to other people. And that's a very hard thing to do in an academic environment where you're encouraged to draw the spotlight to like, me, 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 look at me, look at me. So, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of, oh, surely we're over that with now. And I know when I teach, I have taught like a first-year courses for a long time. And every year I think, oh, maybe this year I can assume that there's like a significant increase in the foundational knowledge that students come into the university with. But it hasn't happened yet. So you get a pocket of students who are like, all over it and (laughs) teaching me stuff from the moment they walk into the room. Obviously, you learn stuff from all your students. But there are some who are are literally still at the level of grappling with the idea that sex and gender are not the same concept. And I have colleagues who would not be able to answer their questions about that. And I think, interestingly, you know, we have all even experience, and that's how the discussion started, was students actually don't want to... Or there are some students who will actually get up and say, why are we learning about gender here? You know, this class, it's not relevant. And even though, you know, we have had a whole discussion about, say, international business and then the aspect of women in uh, international business space, they don't want to agree with it. And, you know, those kind of aggression from students, and many of us have experienced that, makes you wonder whether... Should I be actually correcting this student? Should I actually... What What do you do in that situation? And a lot of us have tried different things, but that support within that context is not enough for women academics. And I think for even what are these kids who are learning here today going to be that next generation thinking? And we'll still be talking about these issues even, I don't know, 30 years from now. Because we need to solve this and we can't have students questioning about these uh, issues in the classroom. So that, to me, is a red light. Yeah, that was a really scary revelation when we realised how many of us had actually been challenged in our university classrooms by students literally coming up and saying, you shouldn't be teaching about this. We don't want to hear about this. This is not appropriate. Like, 
Can you can you just imagine? Can you just imagine that about any other topic? Having to justify that. Is it the attitude that it is fixed? So why are we talking about it, or just the sense that it's irrelevant somehow? Yeah, there's there's a whole mishmash of things that come together, like all you know, good complex problems. But one of them is the rise of the sort of competing victims ideology, which is put out by sort of right wing theorists, which is like if you're paying attention to women, for example, you must automatically hate men. Or if you're paying attention to the LGBTIQ AP plus community, you must automatically hate straight people, cis people. And that's the way a lot of like panic media works. It's like set these things up as like, again, binaries, but worse than that, like in competition. And that, that there's definitely a lot of that comes through in our classroom. So one of the things that I do in when I'm doing introductory lectures with my students is I show them a picture of my blended family. I've, we've got six children, two with my husband. He has four older children. There's three girls, there's three boys. And I put up a picture of the kids and I say, okay, I'd just like to take a quick vote before we go on. Could you just tell me which of these children you want me to care the most about? (laughs) (laughs) Could you just pick for me my (laughs) favourite? Like, you know, it's it's tiring having to make that decision myself. Just vote. Should I care more about the boys? Should I care more about the girls? Like, what are you going on about? That's crazy, ladies. Yeah, it is crazy because I'm an adult human and I'm capable of caring about more than one thing. And it has ramifications, though, for academics, doesn't it, when it comes to reviews and those all-important student evaluations of teaching, which, again, is how academics are promoted through the ranks, isn't it? Or it certainly is taken into account. There's a lot of research that shows that student evaluations are particularly vicious for people of colour, for women, Women. for people from language backgrounds other than English. Really vicious. And again, this is another example of, oh yeah, we know that. Well, then let's stop doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's uh, get some mechanisms in place which are much more inclusive. I think that's an issue. When you are allowing students to uh, comment under that whole anonymous way, they feel protected to say whatever they like. And sometimes I have had students who have commented about somebody's dressing. You know, one of my tutors, why was he or she dressed like that? Why didn't she? Whatever it was, that has nothing to do with teaching. And if you give a student a lower mark, then you know, you are a mean person. So I think we need to have a change in the systems per se, more than anything else, because that gives a space for students to say whatever they fancy. Yeah, it really does. And that it's, it's like a mini version of Twitter, right? You you can, (laughs) you can say whatever you want, and there's no consequences for the student. But I've stood next to colleagues who are crying when they're reading these student feedback saying about which is so personal and vicious. And you see that pattern coming through. I mean, any vicious comment is a problem, obviously. But in our project, we're focusing on the experiences of women and and non-binary academics. And the consistent attack on women for taking up space, for daring to be, like, demanding, intellectually demanding, rigorous, (laughs) to have high expectations. Oh, my gosh, it's... It's, 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 it's very real, it's very painful, it's very damaging. There is some irony here too, isn't there, that really at universities where we've had gender research for decades, that this is still such a systemic issue, structural issue, essentially. The 2020, we were just talking about the ARCs, which is like the prestigious research grants that you want. The participation rate 
of men is much higher than women when they looked at all named researchers. So every person on that research is added there. So even men and women, even there, the participation rate of men was higher. However, the success rate for women was higher, which again talks to women are working really hard. They are capable of getting more grants and ARCs and more success rate. However, the challenge is that possibly there are other things that are going on that their participation rate overall is lower. So that kind of is one of the critical things in this discussion as well for academic women, that why are not many women actually going ahead? Does that mean that there is more support that's needed? Or is it that if you come across as being more assertive, you're like, oh, she's the aggressive one. And the same behavior from a man is like, oh, he's such a great leader. Yeah, the same behavior performed by different bodies, interpreted in completely different ways. Yeah, like what Dara is saying is like, is there, are there other things going on? That's really, that's the, the basic summary of our research. Like what is actually going on here? So we're asking people experiences about, about their experiences of everyday sexism. So being called like sexist sort of comments or sexist jokes or being devalued or being overlooked or being, you know, interrupted in meetings or stuff. And then assumptions about your leadership style. Do you get questioned? Do you get corrected? I've had colleagues report to me about being berated in public by more senior academics. And then we're looking at experiences of sexual harassment and sexual assault as well. So we're trying to cover all of those other things that are going on in an academic's life that that can be connected to discussions about gender, culture, ethnicity, race, sexuality, so that we start to get a, a, a more nuanced picture. Because, and this is this see, this is already happening to me. Dara said at the beginning, we always feel like we need to apologise for things. And now I've reached that point of like, gosh, I better say something nice here because <laughs> otherwise I'm going to sound like, oh, windy, complaining woman, feminist. Ah, no, don't listen to her. <laughs> it's like, well, quick, whoop, 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 warning, sirens. Like very few of academics that I have worked with wake up in the morning and think, right, today I'm going to discriminate against five women. <laughs> like very few of them have an actual list, but many of them have not had the space or the time or the encouragement or the need to reflect upon those day-to-day decisions and the messages that those day-to-day decisions are communicating about what's valued in a person. So they, when they decide to invite a particular person to a meeting and not another person, what that means. When they decide to talk up this person at an event and not this person, that has consequences. When they make timetable decisions that an academic should be expected to teach from 8am in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Now, that has consequences. <laughs> and we understand, of course, all people can have um, care responsibilities but the group most at risk and most vulnerable for having to take those classes without being able to push back women on casual or contract positions. So, like, that that's the sort of stuff we really need people to be, to, to just learn to pause, pay attention, see what's really happening and what's the pattern behind it. Well, it's wonderful that your research is really breaking this down because it's it's by defining it, isn't it, that, that we can hopefully overturn some of these very long-held views and structural traditions. Yeah, and I think the, the most powerful thing that we have, however it is accessed, is voice. So I don't, I don't mean a literal voice. I mean... The, the, the right to communicate, to, to 
be seen, be heard, be understood, be represented, you know, to, to see yourself represented. That's one of the questions we ask. You know, do you find yourself represented in leadership positions? <laughs> do the people that you work with um, have things in common with you? You know, these are the sorts of questions. So trying to provide a foundation where people feel, A, safe to share their experiences and then um, where, we, where, we, where we are promising these people that we will treat that data with respect and we will disaggregate it so we're not just going to talk about women as a homogenous mass and not all women have the same, same experiences. experiences you know I'm a very I'm in a very privileged position I've got a secure job you know I know what I've been doing for a long time you know I'm white middle class like I'm pretty good in terms of the structure um, but we need to get beyond that sort of assumption and look at what's happening for other people as well. Providing that safe space really is crucial. I imagine this this is pretty hard for people to talk about. Definitely. And we noticed that even in our pilots that we have been doing, that um, some of the things that people have shared, it's like, oh, my God, is this still happening? Why are we not doing something about it? You know, it, it and as um, Leonie said, it's just the way our social cognition is. Nobody decides to be sexist or racist or well, any of that. some people do. Oh. <laughs> True that. <laughs> Sorry. But, but I think overall, we don't actually even see it as a problem, which is the problem in itself yeah, because exactly. we have kind of blinded ourselves to this is how, this is the normal. This is how people should behave. This is how women should be. If they shouldn't be aggressive or they shouldn't be assertive, they shouldn't be have that voice, you know, that whole idea that we need to apologize always. We need to, even in our leadership, we need to explain ourselves about why we are saying or doing something. It's just the way we are actually in our social cognition. That's how we have been wired. And we need to. And once these voices are out, once we are able to talk about it in the open, I think that's the most important part of it, that if people are comfortable sharing their stories and we can share them with others, I'm sure there are going to be a lot more people coming out and talking about it. And once there is awareness, people are, I'm hoping that there is going to be a change. This is actually a very hopeful group, I should say, even though we're very real. And I think one of the things that I should mention about our group, which is, is a large team of researchers, we're really lucky, which I'll just mention that we're working with this incredibly diverse and fantastic group of people. So we've got Sakina Al-Haddad, Broz Danellen Fernandez, Sonal Naka, Elaine Yang, Natalie Osborne, Odie Donovan, and uh, Maricel Vasquez. Part of that opportunity that ca- that comes from diversity is that it's made our the process of developing our data collection instrument. It takes a long time. It actually takes a long time to, to take a survey that's off the shelf and say, well, this doesn't actually capture the experiences of my life. This is actually not asking the right questions for me. So having that group and then piloting it extensively, like it's taken us, what, like six months or so for piloting? Yes. I think we have had our own questions added and we've been going, this is my experience. It's not reflecting in this. So having those eight voices to first get that survey right and then to pilot it out with other 10 people was actually quite an interesting you know, study in itself. I know it's been such a learning experience. And this is wonderful, of course, the, you know, the opportunity to learn, the space to learn. It's fantastic. That's the best part about research is all the stuff that you learn. But a part of it is because we've done that, we started with like the personal, built it up to try and make questions that might relate to as, as diverse a range of people as possible. We can collect those stories like you were saying, 
that they're not like the the hero narratives of one really, 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 really awful thing that's happened to one person. Which I think that's that sort of our society's good at. It's like, oh, this terrible thing has happened over here. It's like, you know, like there's been a disaster. We'll fix that. That's all gone now. But it's actually that day-to-day persistence that we're trying to pay attention to. And so, uh, finally, you hope that you'll get some strategies and frameworks from these results? I mean, I know this is a long way down the track, but is that the, the ultimate aim? Yeah, and definitely I think there's going to be a lot more recommendations and um, I would say even some policy lessons as well because I think there is a role for everyone to play, you know, not just this is a voices of academic women, but this is the same story everywhere. I wanted to actually share very quickly of a research. So I was uh, recently doing a talk on DNI, diversity and inclusion, and I mentioned this that there are, and this is um, statistics from 2019, there are more chief executive officers named Andrew among ASX 200 companies than there are CEOs who are women. That in itself is <laughs> the best statistic. It's incredible. And we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. But like knowledge is power. That's yes. that's really one of the foundational principles. And this is, I guess, now the bit where we advertise the survey and say, we're going to be making the survey available to all our members. We're, we're really relying upon our networks, our community to distribute that survey to as many academic um, women, non-binary people as possible so that we can really respect and honour their, their voices. Yeah. So is that just at Griffith University or how wide are you going? Anywhere in Australia. All over Australia. So collecting all of this data with all of these rich results, how are you going to put all this together? What are some of the the ways that you'll be doing that? So we're going to be putting together all of the usual academic, serious (laughs) outputs. So we'll write journal articles, of course, and we'll write reports um, that we can take to university management, both at Griffith and nationally. But in addition to that, we understand that women are diverse, they are diverse people, and these are, these are really embodied experiences that they're having. We want to be able to capture that emotion, that feeling. So we're going to be having visual displays as well, so we're going to have, to have like art installations oh, <laughs> around the university so people can actually see the sorts of images that people have shared that capture their feelings, their experiences at various times. And interact with that artwork and be challenged by that, I imagine. And I think that will actually come face to face with a lot of people who have either experienced or are part of that problem. Wonderful. Yeah, we're hoping that by the end of it, we can actually write up some a document for universities to take into effect some recommendations that they can take because we need a change. Yeah. And we've got like we are in a, a good position here in that we've got a university leadership that wants to listen. So we're going to take the most of that opportunity (laughs) and um, have a lot of things to say. (laughs) Hopefully it draws a line in the sand by the sound of it. It's (laughs) exciting work that you're doing. Thank you so much for telling us about it and for joining us on the Gender Card today, Leonie and Dara. Thank you again. Fantastic. Thank Thank you. Thanks to Griffith University's Dr Dara Shah and Professor Leonie Rowan for joining us on this episode of the Gender Card. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced by the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on all the major podcast providers, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.